Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation podcast that goes behind the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit with an educational mission of empowering people through chess, one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button. There you can find a membership option that is going to be right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now, let's start your clock and listen to this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Hello, this is Daniel Lucas, the editor of Chess Life Magazine and director of publications for the U.S. Chess Federation, and welcome to the June edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Joining us is the author of our June Chess Life cover story on the Candidates Tournament and Fabiano Caruana's victory, Grandmaster Ian Rogers of Australia. He is probably the hardest working, most globetrotting chess journalist out there covering many international events, not just for Chess Life, but for a number of magazines, including 64 from Russia 50 moves in Australia, as well as magazines in Germany, Italy, Spain, Denmark, and Sweden. He also writes frequently for Chess Life Online. Rogers is the first Australian to become a chess grandmaster, achieving the title in 1985, and he maintained the highest rating in that country-slash-continent for over 20 years, representing Australia at 14 chess Olympiads, 12 of them as first board. So, Ian, welcome to our podcast. G'day. You are our first international guest, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Ian is joining us from Sydney, Australia, so we have a bit of a 14-hour time difference. Not something that we're we're used to dealing with here. I think it'll add an element of fun for us. So tell us a little bit about your chess background and what chess was like in Australia as you grew up. Well, I was very lucky because there was a local chess club just a few streets away from where I lived when I grew up in Melbourne. At one point, I just wandered along with a few friends uh, I had from primary school. We only stayed for a few months, um, too too many adults in it. But um, about uh, a year or so later, there was an American called Bobby Fisher on the television all the time. And uh, I thought about wandering along to the the club again. And I basically uh, got given an entry form for a junior tournament, played it, had fun. And just kept going from there. One of the things about though about being the first, uh, you know, a trailblazer as a as a GM in your country, who was your coach? Who was your main teacher? I didn't have a, a coach back then. Um, I was lucky because there were a number of other strong players coming up at the time. Daryl Johansson, who also became a grandmaster, uh, and uh, Greg Hjorth, who became a, um, a mathematician at uh, Berkeley, I think, but. Uh, was a really strong player until he retired. So they all all pushed uh, me onwards. And at one point, um, the top Australian player of the 70s in Melbourne, Robert Jamison, uh, organised uh, training squads for the, the best kids. And so we did have uh, one session every couple of months together, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, it taught you to be self-critical because everyone else was going to be critical of you if you weren't. And uh, it, it was uh, beneficial, but no no official coach. Back then, coaches were very rare, I think. And then I imagine you had the same problem that many of our American players have here about uh, for achieving a title, uh, just lack of international competition. 
to, to get the required norms. How did you overcome that? Well, I started traveling very young. I played a couple of World Cadet Championships. Uh, this That event had just been invented. It was basically the World Under-17 Championship. Uh, and I, I came uh, third in a couple of those events. And uh, I, I enjoyed the traveling. So uh, I, I was lucky in a way because Australia was part of the Asian zone. So I got to play a zonal tournament in Japan and uh, to, to travel around Asia a bit. Um, yeah, the difficulty is, of course, even the, the closest country like uh, Indonesia or Singapore is seven or eight hours flying away. So I, I actually regard uh, America rather enviously. You only have about six hours and you're in Europe, so uh, at least if you live on the East Coast. But uh, yeah, w- once you uh, realised that you were going to have to travel, th- that's what I did, and I also enjoyed it. And you, you had a fairly extensive tournament career, uh, included, you know, we mentioned the Olympiads, but you know, you also had some uh, success at, at the Groningen event. I'm probably mispronouncing that. How do you pronounce that tournament? That that city's name? Groningen. Okay, yeah, I could zoom type. Yeah, a Scottish. It's a Scottish CH at the start. Okay. Um, so, Ochmalad is, is a Spanish, uh, sorry, it's a Scottish um, word. So, if you use that for a Dutch G, you're doing okay. So, how did you end up transitioning from player to journalist? Well, uh, I had to keep myself going. And uh, very early on, I managed to get a column with the Australasian Post, just a puzzle column. But uh, it, uh, it's a, it was a magazine doesn't exist anymore that basically had a bikini-clad bikini uh, woman on the front cover and uh, lots of anecdotes and puzzles inside, um, Australian folk stories, that sort of thing. And they decided to have a, a chess column. And uh, that was $60 a week that kept me going when I wasn't winning. And that was very, very important. And after that, I, I kept writing um, chess columns where I could. Uh, you regularly got sacked but found new new places to write. And then uh, once I was in Europe a bit and going to some of the big tournaments, uh, the European magazines started getting interested in, in me writing for them. And I built up a, a stable of, of magazines. And when I retired in 2007, I thought that uh, might be the end of my travelling life. But in fact, the, uh, the magazine work has increased. I, I keep, keep thinking that the magazines are going to go, out, the print magazines are going to go out of business, but somehow they're surviving reasonably well. Yeah, no, uh, specialty magazines like Chess Life uh, are doing okay right now. We certainly, there's no advertising from outside the chess world, but there's a built-in readership for them that's, that still values it. So yeah, I, I think your, your, your career is, is safe for the time being. Possibly, yeah. I was very encouraged when the Australian magazine 50 Moves, which started up as an uh, internet-only magazine, um, after about three years uh, had so much pressure, it became a print magazine as well. And it's a, a very um, impressive print magazine. Uh, so the, the fact that there is a demand for print is, is quite encouraging, yeah. So let's jump into your article. So you attended the, the candidates event. Do you have any uh, like background stories of things that readers and listeners might find of interest as what a hardworking chess journalist sees from behind the scenes? <laughs> well, uh, for Berlin, uh, because of uh, I've, I'm coming off a, a kidney transplant of a while ago, um, I have to keep checking in with doctors. Uh, so I didn't, I wasn't able to go for the full three weeks of the Berlin tournament. I went for the middle rounds, and uh, uh, well, it. It sounded fantastic, but when you got to the venue, you realised it was just totally inappropriate for a chess tournament, uh, a converted bu- brewery with five levels, 
uh, barely renovated, it seemed, though apparently it had been. Uh, lots of concrete floors, uh, sound travelling between the playing arena and the next two floors or backwards from the spectators so it uh, and and extremely cold in in various parts so it just wasn't uh, appropriate but uh, the players made the best of it and in a way it was uh, quite a, an exciting uh, place to to be visiting because that part of Berlin was the uh, growing area that was uh, it, it had um, three sides of the uh, three sides were covered by the Berlin Wall in the old days and um, when it started getting, uh, when Berlin started getting regenerated, well, that part of the city uh, didn't, so it became a cheap rent area. Artists moved there. A anyone um, who needed to do something but didn't have a lot of money, and uh, it's got lots of uh, lively restaurants and so on. Not that close to the venue, but it it, uh, it was an exciting part of town. It's just uh, not not a great spot to hold a chess tournament. Well, you said the players made the best of it. Absolutely. Were there any complaints from them? From day one to the final day uh, at the press conferences, you can see uh, various niggles from the players. Um, Karyakin was probably the most outspoken uh, and because he didn't like the hotel either, so he was basically saying everything was bad. But um, it's believed, and I'm, I think it's probably true, that at one point um, Grishel brought a nearly full um, fruit juice a large fruit juice bottle, two-litre fruit juice bottle, um, to to the game, which was uh, sorry, to the press conference, which was uh, filled with urine, because the toilet situation was so awful in the venue that uh, he brought his own bottle. So you you get an idea of how inadequate it was. Um, yeah, it, it, and I've never seen players complain about the organisation as openly as they did at Berlin. Uh, but they had every right. Now the same organisers will be um, uh, running the World Championship. At event do you anticipate that the organizers are going to learn from this and uh that there'll be the world-class conditions or is that still <laughs> open to well, question the world championship is normally uh run with decent conditions uh you know, uh well you in the u.s uh, know um what the uh new york world championship between uh Karyak and, and carlson was like and you didn't see the players complaining there so uh, it, it is easier to work with when there are only two players. I'm a little bit uh, worried that we haven't heard any news of a venue yet in London. Uh, so I still, know, knowing the, the way the World Chess Federation operates, I still wonder whether at the last minute it might move somewhere else. Um, so you, with with uh, the World Chess Federation FIDE, you basically don't book your tickets until you're absolutely sure it's going to happen on those dates in that city because I've been burnt too often before. Uh, and uh, I, th I think uh, the World Championship match is, is going to be absolutely fine because at worst they um, move it to a little chess club in St. Louis and uh, the playing conditions will be good. The spectative area will be limited, but uh, it'll be run okay. So I'm not worried at all. What would you say the over-under is on it actually moving to St. Louis? 5% um, at the moment, but uh, you, it, the longer it goes without any announcements about the London uh, event, the, the better chances uh, St. Louis has. But of course, the longer it goes on, the less chance St. Louis has of making it a really spectacular event too. Do you know if any venue at all is is in the running in London, or is it just is that completely been radio silence? I, I don't I don't know at all. But Aegon may well know and be uh, timing their announcement. But given Aegon's track record in organising uh, these events, it's uh, it it tends to be that they make the big announcement first and then they scramble to justify it 
and most of the time they've managed to hold uh, the event in the city that they've announced. But uh, the uh, yeah the th the technical parts of the organisation, for example, in Berlin as a spectator, uh, it it wasn't terrible, uh, but as a live spectator, it was a total disaster. Yeah, the the transmission uh, broke down a number of times. Uh, the uh, the commentators were sometimes using uh, chess 24 or chess base to get the moves because they couldn't get it from the official feed, and it, it was really uh, uh, awful. But that's the sort of detail that Agon don't worry about until it's much too late. So they once once they got the venue in Berlin, I, I guess they thought, okay, well we put a big sign out the front and everything will be okay. But there are so many little things in chess organisation that Agon don't do that uh, yeah, it could make an event much better. Just a small example, um, a, a few years ago, Berlin held the uh, World Rapid and Blitz Championship and that was a, a bit of a fiasco because people were paying to, to view it and could hardly see any of the games. But uh, at, that, at that event, the Berlin Society, Alaska Society had offered a big, big exhibition to go alongside the event. It um, didn't happen. So this time when it was in Berlin, uh, they did have a, a small Alaska exhibition at the venue, which was something of interest for the spectators. But they also declined other obvious uh, possibilities like a, a bookstall for the spectators. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's just uh, very hard to predict what uh, Agon will will do, but you know that there will be details that uh, won't work. Another example was the press room, uh, basically very little heating and no light uh, at the press room in Berlin. So eventually they, well, after a day or two, they installed a light, uh, temporary light, which promptly fell on one of the journalists, injured his shoulder, sent him to hospital. <laughs> uh, so they put the same light up again uh, and everyone moved to another part of the room, uh, but the heating problem wasn't solved. Um, so. It was uh, you brought your coat down when you wanted to work in the press room. It, it's uh, it's just a detail, but Aegon has very little attention to detail. With Caruana winning, obviously this is a, a very exciting event for uh, for American chess, and uh, it's the first time in fifty years, of, of course, since Fisher, that we have an American playing for the unified world chess title. Of course, Gadikamsky played uh, Karpov in '96 in, in, in that. Uh, FIDE World Championship match, but at the time Kasparov was, you know, considered the uh, the de facto world champion. Um, is the rest of the world? Do they see excitement uh, about this and Fabiano's rise to the top here, or is this really just an American phenomenon where we're saying this is great that there's an American playing? Oh, it's absolutely not an American phenomenon because Italy are thrilled to bits that Carolina has made it to the uh, World Championship. Uh, he, of course, uh, Caruana, of course, played for uh, Italy uh, until just a few years ago and went from a 12-year-old to number two in the world with, with funding from the I Italian Federation. So they still uh, lay claim to him uh, as much, I don't know, maybe more than uh, the US do uh, in, in terms of nationalism. Uh, the rest of the world are just very interested, I think, because Caruana is an extremely strong player. He's got a very interesting style. He's beaten um, Carlson on regular occasions, and uh, and he is capable of outstanding performances, as we saw in the uh, wonderful result at the Sinkerfield Cup uh, three or four years ago. So, yeah, Caruana is, I think, with Aronian, everybody's choices, the person they wanted to see to play uh, Carlson, because they are 
capable of beating Carlson. Right. That uh, performance that Singfield Cup you referenced was the 2014 edition when he won seven straight games. Wonderful performance. Yeah. Incredible. I think the highest uh, tournament performance rating ever, if, if I'm not mistaken on that. It could be true, though, of course, with rating inflation, uh, it's very hard to compare uh, historical results, but it was certainly really wonderful. And uh, one, one little anecdote at the closing ceremony of that event, uh, Rex Sinkerfield uh, got up and said, this is addressed to everyone except Hikaru. Uh, when are you going to um, move to St. Louis and start playing for America? And uh, so uh, Caruana took the hint a year later and uh, is now playing for the U.S., uh, although money, money played a factor, of course. No doubt. And we had another American um, at, at the at the candidates, Wesley So, and we very easily could have had a third one uh, in, with Hikaru if things had just worked out slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, it was w- one way to, to phrase this, you know, 25% of the players at the candidates were Americans. And Indeed. Two of the eight, um, if my math is right there. Is this, you think, purely due to St. Louis and uh, the money infusion? Is there something else about world chess going on that, that allows uh, America's resurgence? Well, I think uh, there's uh, so there's a number of factors. Uh, first of all, the uh, it, it certainly helped that both uh, Caruana and Wesley changed uh, to play for the states a few years ago and have had great encouragement and opportunity since then. Um, yeah, uh, Wesley So's decision was perhaps easier than uh, Fabiano's because it's clear that uh, the opportunities he'd get in the states were a lot more than the opportunities he'd get back in the Philippines. Uh, whereas for Caruana, he was getting uh, some support in Italy, but uh, he, he uh, was born in the States and uh, it, it seemed clear that at some point he may well uh, start playing for the US. It was just a, a question of when, I guess. So uh, that, that helped the US, but uh, the fact that Hikaru got up to be a world-class player from the States was already an indication that you could do it from the US because... Uh, it's it's been sort of a long time between drinks, if you like. Um, when you look at Gadakamsky, he was uh, not I wouldn't say lured to the US, but certainly um, the the US recruited him at a, a World Youth Championship. Uh, he was he and his family were very happy to come, uh, and they. Uh, but uh, I think Kamsky simply did did almost everything uh, by himself back then. But uh, when you look at uh, Hikaru, he, he's mo- moved up from where the U.S. players used to be able to achieve. You know, they they could, uh, apart from Kamsky, it was tough to get into the world top 20 if you're a U.S. player, uh, although they dropped in occasionally. But uh, Hikaru, well, with, with things like the Sinkerfield Cup turning up, he's had opportunity. Uh, he's been willing to travel, of course, and he's shown that you can do it, and that that means that people are more likely to uh, sort of raise their sights a bit. So your young players, your Sevians, your Xiongs and so on, are thinking, okay, well, I can make the top 10 now, whereas previously such a, an ambition was considered at, at least optimistic, if, if not unrealistic. Moving on to some of the other players, I mean, who do you think had the most disappointing result at the candidates overall? Well, that's not a difficult question, is it? There's one guy who was favourite who came at the bottom. So uh, poor old Levon Aronian, uh, so many second places, so many missed opportunities. He's 
he's been leading at the halfway point of the candidates a number of times and then uh, just fell, uh, fell away. But this, this tournament was an unmitigated disaster. And once it started going wrong, uh, yeah, he didn't win a game, I think, after he beat uh, Kariakin in round four. Uh, once it started going wrong, he was like a gambler trying to get his money back and just losing more and more and more. And what what is it? Is it preparation? Is it the physicality of, of such a long event? I think uh, part of it was the fact that uh, Aronian was not in great shape in the, in the event, although that, uh, in a way, form in chess is very difficult to control. You don't know until you start playing badly that you're not in great shape. Uh, it was also, uh, I think, the added pressure from going so close so many times and uh, and failing and thinking, well, I am getting on. You know, I'm I'm half a dozen or more years older than most of my rivals. I'm not going to have too many more possibilities, perhaps. And uh, thinking, okay, this is the one where I really have to go for it. Uh, and 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 also, Aronian, having spent so many years as clear world number two, maybe five years, is it has got lots of rivals, and in fact cannot maintain a, a world number two position anymore. So he knows that the window of opportunity to become world champion is closing. Aronian many years ago, well, many is an exaggeration given he's only in his 30s, but quite a few years ago said, okay, I'll, um, I'm really happy for Carlson to win the world championship, uh, bring all this money into chess, and then I'll get the money by beating him. Well, it hasn't quite worked out that way. And, uh, uh, yeah, you, you really wonder how Aronian can come back from this. He's a, a strong character, but this was a, a desperately bad result. Mm-hmm. And as we're uh, just, was it, four months away from, from the World Championship in November, what, what can we look, look towards? What major events do we expect Fabi and Magnus to be playing in before the World Championship? Or are they going to be completely hunkered down in preparation? Uh, they will play certain events, but it's unlikely they'll play together. So, for example, uh, Carlson will play in Beale in Switzerland in July. Uh, Caruana will uh, play the Sinkerfield Cup, uh, but I don't think Carlson is, is playing in that one. I'm, I'm not completely sure, but I think not. And, uh, yeah, uh, they may meet at the Olympiad, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, – it, Generally, they stay away from each other. They play because you need to stay in shape, but uh, they they will probably not meet over the board until the, the World Championship uh, event. Of course, they did play straight after the candidates uh, in a tournament in um, Karlsruhe and Baden-Baden, uh, and that event was uh, quite, quite dramatic. Certainly, Caruana, who um, uh, was extremely tired after Berlin, managed to uh, play really well in, in Baden, Baden and uh, he drew a very difficult game against Carlson but we're not see, we're not going to see too many games like that in the lead up to the championship readers I, I hope you've enjoyed listening to all this background the, this article is 10 pages in our June issue and it, it's a there's a lot of chess analysis in this by Ian that's a lot of fun one of the things that I thought was the most fun, uh, in how you structured your article, Ian, is I kind of described it as Quentin Tarantino-esque because you you kind of turned the timeline on itself, uh, starting with round 14. And then at the end, very end of the article, you, you refer right back to it. So uh, if it's not Tarantino-esque, maybe it's at least Mobius strip-like. <laughs> yeah, well, the last round was sensational in Berlin. It really was uh, so exciting. You have to start an article with that. And then you look at how, how the players reached that position, the pressure on Caruana to win that final game. Uh, at some point, he realised he only needed a draw, and yet he went on to win anyway. It, to be honest, Caruana's form 
since Berlin has been pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, he came second in the US Championship, but that was to a, a yeah a, a incredible performance by Shanklin. Uh, but uh, both in Germany and in the US Championship, he has has shown that uh, he can keep that form from Berlin. You'd expect him to be tired after the the three week uh, marathon tournament, but. Somehow he's, he's come up again and again. I'm glad he's having a bit of a rest at the moment. Uh, but, yeah, he's uh, he, he really is in great shape. And you would have to say that um, his current form is uh, as good as Carlson, if he can keep it. Of course, Carlson is known for his consistency. Uh, yeah, Caruana has to show that he can maintain that sort of consistency too, playing at a really high level. Well, as I tend to close out the, uh, these these podcasts now, this is my third one. If if this does not whet your appetite, listeners, to pick up a copy of Just Life, rejoin your membership and read all about the, the candidates tournament. I don't know what will. So again, Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for getting up early. It's early morning in, in Sydney, Australia right now. Thanks for all you do. No worries at all. Thanks a lot. And now it's time for our monthly feature, Checking In with Jen, where we check in with our senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, uh, about what's happening on our website and social media. So welcome back, Jen. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here as always. And this month, we're going to focus on women's aspects to the to uschess.org. Uh, so let us know what we have, that what resources are there for women on our website and what stories are coming up. Well, one thing I'm really excited about is that we recently developed a couple of new social media accounts, U.S. Chess Women on Twitter and Instagram, uh, just so we could really focus on the growing number of females in the game and you know their games as well as fun visuals from the tournaments they play in. So you should definitely join not only U.S. Chess, but also U.S. Chess Women and both of those platforms, Instagram and Twitter. And as for the website, uh, something that not everybody knows, but if you go to the news section, you can follow specific categories. And one of those categories is women. Uh, actually, you can find it now under the tab on the homepage community. And then if you go to women and you click on it, you're going to see all of the news that's related to women. This is a particularly big time for women in the news because the Women's World Championship uh, recently concluded. And it was a bit controversial because in the very beginning of the event, it got very little attention. So I was really proud that on U.S. Chess, we actually had Grandmaster Ian Rogers on site writing a report for us. And unfortunately, he couldn't stay the whole time, but we kept our eye on it and uh, reported throughout as uh, Ju Wen Jun became the new Women's World Champion. So uh, check that out. Uh, those games were pretty um, thrilling, lots of tactics. Um, another thing we've been writing a lot about on our website recently is all these uh, success of the women in the scholastic circuit. Uh, we actually had our first uh, female elementary chess champion ever in Rihanna Key at the uh, K6 championships in Nashville. So you can read about that as well in the women's area of our website, um, as well as uh, some local tournaments like the New York State Girls Championships, which drew over 200 players. And I, I should add in too that Ian is also uh, has written the uh, article about the Women's World Championship for the July issue of Chess Life for next month. Um, that won't be the cover story, so we're not talking to him about that, but it is something further that readers can read if they're looking for more past what he did for the website. But certainly, Jen, women's chess is really where it's happening right now. If there's going to be significant growth in the U.S. Chess Federation, 
then it's going to have to come from uh, the rank of women, right? I think that's right, Dan. And I mean, one thing that I'm really excited about is I'm a member of the uh, U.S. Chess Women's Committee, or I'm the office liaison. And these girls' room that they have at the National Scholastic Tournaments are just really booming. Um, at the recent one, we had our, our reigning U.S. Women's Champion, Nazi Pikidzi, as well as Grandmaster Irina Crush um, come out and help the girls with uh, puzzles and game analysis and lectures. And I, I just think it's such a fantastic initiative because uh, for girls who want to get into the game, a lot of the time the issue is social. If there aren't other girls in their club or school, sometimes they don't get really interested in the game. So having a girls' room where they can meet other girls if there aren't as many in their team and school is is really brilliant. And I, I'm really excited about this initiative. Yes, and I, we can add that the Women's Chess Committee uh, was the Committee of the Year uh, from U.S. Chess last year, and I, I think that was well-deserved because even though we have many, many very active committees in our organization, uh, the new leadership in the Women's Committee kind of took that organization from zero to 60 in one year, and it, it, it's been noticeable with all of these things, such as the girls' room that you mentioned. Absolutely. I mean, Maureen is doing a fantastic job. And I, we actually also had a feature that you can find in that women's section um, on Kimberly Dew McVeigh, who's also just uh, an absolute force. Um, she's usually the front woman at these uh, girls' rooms, and she's a great ambassador for chess. So we did a Q&A with her about those girls' rooms and also the charity chess championships which uh, just just occurred to benefit ovarian cancer research. And, you know, that was a really amazing event because there were like over a dozen grandmasters who came out and most of the people who came out were male. I mean, there was the world chess champion challenger, Fabiano Caruana, who supported the event. Um, but to see so many men coming out for a cause uh, that, you know, affects women so, so much, I thought that was a really great feminist statement that it's not just about, women helping women, but it's also about men helping women. And, you know, that's a great metaphor for how we can grow chess. The The boys and men in the game um, also should try to uh, encourage the, the girls and women in their life. Absolutely. And the website and social media is the place to, to find out about all of this. So thank you very much for joining us again, Jen, and we'll speak to you next month. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks, everyone. And yep, join us on U.S. Chess at Twitter and Facebook, of course, and our U.S. Chess Women's accounts on Instagram and Twitter as well. Now it is time for our monthly trivia contest sponsored by U.S. Chess Federation Sales. You can find U.S. Chess Federation Sales at uscfsales.com. And there you can get all your chess books, equipment, and DVDs. Our April question was, when was the last gatefold cover that we used in Chess Life? We had exactly zero correct answers for that one. So no one wins the $50 gift certificate for that month. The answer is the March 2008 issue, which was our Fisher obituary issue. And we had Bobby Fisher on one side and Gadikamski on the other side of the gatefold. For our May edition, the question was, when was the last time an employee of U.S. Chess actually appeared on a cover of the magazine? And the answer was Alan Cantor on our May 2007 issue when he was part of the U.S. Amateur Team East winning team. 
Alan has worked as our copy editor for Chess Life and editorial assistant for the U.S. Chess Federation for many, many years and accomplished the rather rare feat of being on our cover. We had one correct answer. Young Trevor Brooks, congratulations. Your $50 gift certificate is on its way to you in your email box. Now, We've had such few answers for our trivia contest that it's been so generously sponsored by USCF Sales, but I'm going to listen to you loud and clear, deciding that you really don't like the idea of the trivia contest. So we're going to switch gears and make it a best question contest instead. So write to us at letters at uschess.org. And if your question is determined to be the best question and is read on the air, then you will be the winner of the $50 gift certificate. This will begin with our July podcast, and we will be speaking to Mike Klein that month about his cover stories on both Chess Life and Chess Life Kids about the U.S. Championship. So send those letters. We'll probably read more than one letter, but the one that's determined to be the best question will be the winner of the $50 gift certificate. So this ends our June edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Please join us next month when we talk to Mike Klein about his U.S. championship stories in both Chess Life and Chess Life Kids. And remember to send in those questions to letters at uschess.org. Thank you for listening and good chess.